Well, good morning. It's good to see you all this morning. Let's get started by praying together. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for the Lord's Day. We're thankful for, um, for the fourth commandment, Father. We're thankful for the opportunity that you give us, the exhortation you give us even to um, pause from our labors, um, to set aside a whole day, um, to worship you, and to rest. Um, Father, this morning, um, we're thankful to even have this hour uh, before worship, um, to meditate together on what you say to us in your word, and what it means for our lives. And we pray that your spirit would dwell with us and would even prepare us um, for the worship um, that we'll experience very soon. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. All right, this morning we are um, drawing near to the end of Calvin's Institutes. We've been um, doing an overview and a, a study together um, of Calvin's um, teaching and his institutes for the past several months. Um, today we come um, to the topic of infant baptism. Um, last week we covered um, Calvin's thoughts on baptism in general, and Calvin um, added another chapter after that um, to deal with the question of infant baptism, and I wanted to spend some time with, it, with you today um, covering that topic as well. Um, first, I just want to say this, though. I am well aware that um, this is an issue or a topic that um, some of us in our, in our church, some of us in this room, um, likely have disagreements about in terms of what the Scripture teaches and regarding whether um, the children of believers um, should receive um, the sacrament of baptism um, even prior um, to their expressing uh, faith on their own. Um, and so this morning I want to present what the, is the position of our church unapologetically. This is what we believe the scriptures teach. Um, what Calvin is saying here, he summarizes very well what we would call the reformed um, argument for infant baptism. And yet I want to do so hopefully in a way that is, um, that is humble, that is acknowledges that this is not an issue over which um, we believe the church should divide in some, um, in some way, that this is an issue that is not um, spoken of, for example, in the creeds of our church. It is not a fundamental issue to the gospel. Um, it is something that we can have different opinions about. And yet, at the same time, I want to argue for what I think the scriptures teach and what our tradition um, um, holds as well and what we practice here at our church. Um, so with that in mind, let's look a little bit this morning at um, the, the, the arguments that Calvin gives for infant baptism. Now, we should say that Calvin includes this chapter in his Institutes because at the time at which he wrote, um, this was a debated question. Of course, um, Calvin was part of the movement that uh, sought to reform the Roman church and was exiled from that church and um, started anew, um, the, the beginnings of the Protestant movement. But there were others um, who were um, in, in that conversation at the time. There was a group, of course, um, called the Anabaptists, some those that are the precursor to the modern Baptist movement today, um, who went even further, so to speak, than what Calvin did. Um, Calvin sought to reform the Roman church in substantial ways, and yet on many issues he um, understood things in a similar way. For example, the, the, who is the proper recipients of infant baptism? Um, but the, the Anabaptists went further than that and say, no, um, baptism is only rightly applied to those who have previously expressed faith, or faith, and in fact, if you were baptized before you expressed faith, um, that baptism doesn't count, so to speak, it's not valid, and you must be baptized um, again, or technically for the first time, in their view, um, and even sort of 
thought that table fellowship and, and Christian membership in a church uh, was dependent upon that point. And this is it's important to say that Calvin, um, for all his criticism of um, the Roman church, uh, which were many and, and, and strong, um, was never rebaptized. He was baptized as a baby, as an infant in the Roman Catholic Church, um, and even though there was much pressure on him to, to say, you need to be baptized again, Calvin, either because of the errors of the Roman Catholic Church and its teaching at the time, or because of the Anabaptist arguments for the necessity of expressed faith to precede baptism. But Calvin always resisted those calls, and he was never um, rebaptized, along with um, basically all the reformed, uh, classically reformed um, reformers like, like Luther and, and others like that. Um, he did not embrace um, rebaptism or baptism as an adult. All right, let's, uh, let's look now at what Calvin says about infant baptism. He titles his chapter, Infant Baptism Best Accords with Christ's Institution and the Nature of the Sign. And really, in order to understand Calvin's argument, it really rests a great deal on a, what he would say is a proper reading of the entire scriptures, and especially the Old Testament. Um, we know that, that the New Testament does not give us um, you know, anything like a, a proof text that says only adults may be baptized or children must be baptized. And so for Calvin, um, he says, well, in that case, because of the, the, the comparative silence, relative silence in the New Testament on this question, this particular question, um, we need to understand the covenants as a whole and the way in which God has always worked with his people. So really to understand Calvin's argument and to understand the Reformed argument for infant baptism, you really have to understand what we believe about the Old Testament and the way in which um, God's covenant, um, there, that there was one covenant of grace. That is really fundamental to what Calvin um, wants us to understand. Um, there are not multiple covenants, one covenant with Abraham, another covenant with Moses, another covenant um, later that comes through Jesus and David and then Jesus. Now there, there's one covenant of grace uh, with multiple administrations, we would say. And that is really a fundamental understand, reason to understand infant baptism. And that, I think, is where sometimes um, this argument gets sideways um, in the modern American conversation. Because that itself is a debated point, of course, um, in terms of the continuity of the covenants throughout the scriptures. So, and, and, and at the center of that covenant of grace in the Old Testament, especially through Abraham, was the practice, the, the sign and the seal of circumcision. And circumcision and baptism and their relationship to one another is fundamental in terms of understanding the rationale for infant baptism. So Calvin begins very early in this chapter being talking about baptism and circumcision. He says this, he says, but since before baptism was instituted, God's people had circumcision instead, let us then examine how these two signs differ from one another and what respects they are alike. From this will appear the anagogic relationship of the one to the other. Anyone know what anagogic means? I didn't. I had to look it up. What's that? You don't. That's right. Jim's being honest. Um, yeah, I had to look it up this week when I was preparing for today. I came across this word. Anagogic is a word. It is, it is similar to um, something saying something is, is analogical to something else and the similar, but it carries with it an additional meaning. Um, it, it has the meaning of lifting upward. Um, so if something has an anagogic to relationship to something that comes next, um, there is a lesser thing that precedes something else that is greater, um, that, is, that is similar, but is greater um, that follows. So, the, so Calvin is arguing that 
circumcision has an anagogic relationship to baptism, that it precedes baptism, that it is similar in some ways, but it is actually a lesser sign. The lesser gives way um, for the great, to the greater. When the Lord commands Abraham to observe circumcision, Calvin says, he previously states that he will be God to him and to his descendants, and he adds that he will possess the abundance and the sufficiency of all things. And he does this in order that Abraham may regard his hand as the source of every good. One of the things that we really have to wrestle with if we're going to understand the argument is the importance of circumcision um, in the Old Testament and in, in, in the covenant made with Abraham and with his descendants. Um, circumcision was not just a sort of add-on. It was a way in which God sealed himself to Abraham and to the promises that he made to him in Genesis. And it was something, of course, that he instructed Abraham to continue um, with his male children on the eighth day. It was not something that, um, that, that the descendants of Abraham were to opt in or out of, depending on how they felt about the Lord. It was a sign and a seal that was to be applied to them without exception. And, and, and actually, one of the um, primary conditions of the covenant that the Lord was making with Abraham was to be faithful in this regard, to apply the sign and seal of circumcision um, to their male children on the eighth day, such that a neglect of circumcision was a neglect of the covenant uh, for Abraham. It was a, it was a, a, a substantial and significant thing. Um, and that is really important to understand as we think about the, the relationship of circumcision, infant baptism, and the importance of infant baptism um, today. Um, Calvin goes on to say that Paul also, therefore, when he shows to the Ephesians out of what destruction the Lord has delivered them, from the fact that they had not been admitted into covenant of circumcision, and therefore infers that they were without Christ, without God, without hope, strangers to the testament of promise. Um, this, is, this is a really important point to note. Um, Cal, what Calvin's saying here is that when Paul addresses the Gentile believers um, in Ephesians 2, he says that because they were not of the Jewish religion, because they were not um, part of that covenant of grace um, prior to the coming of Christ, that they were without hope, they were without God, because God had especially promised to deal with the people of Israel, and such that if you were going to get into the covenant, you had to come in through the gate of circumcision. Um, the circumcision was a big deal, according to Paul. It wasn't just some sort of you know, optional thing that was out there. It was a mark that, that God was in covenant with you. Um, but the first access to God, the first entry into immortal life, is the forgiveness of sins. Accordingly, this promise corresponds to the promise of baptism that we will be cleansed. Essentially what Paul is saying here is that, that once circumcision was the way into that covenant with God, um, but now something has changed. Now the dividing wall has been broken down. Now circumcision is no longer required. So what now is necessary? Paul is gonna, or Calvin's going to argue that for Paul, baptism is that answer. Um, Calvin here talks also about circumcision. Circumcision was not only a bare sign applied um, to the people of Israel as a mark of their covenant with God. It was also something that they were supposed to grow into, that they were supposed to respond to, right? Again and again in the Old Testament, uh, Moses and the prophets tell the people of Israel to not be circumcised only in the flesh, but in the heart. Moses more clearly explains and exhorts the Israelite people to circumcise the foreskin of their heart for the Lord. Circumcision was always not only about a bare external sign, but about a heart relationship between the Lord and his people. 
And if you were a circumcised person in the Old Testament, that circumcision was something that you were meant to grow into, that you have to respond to. Um, you, you couldn't be uncircumcised. Um, there was only one, you know, there, you, were, you were circumcised no matter what. And so you could either be a, an unfaithful circumcised person or a faithful circumcised person. Um, the, 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 the question wasn't, well, I'm gonna, am I going to grow up one day and, and decide if I want to be circumcised? No, you were circumcised at birth, and then you had to respond one way or another um, to that mark of the covenant that the Lord had put upon you. Um, we have, therefore, Calvin says, a spiritual promise given to the patriarchs in circumcision, such as given to us in baptism, because circumcision represented for them forgiveness of sins and mortification of the flesh. Circumcision was a seal of the forgiveness of sins that they were brought into the covenant of grace. It was also something that was to be for them a sign of the mortification of their flesh that they would take up for the rest of their lives. In that way, it is very similar, Calvin would say, to baptism. Moreover, as we have taught that Christ is the foundation of baptism in whom both of these reside, so it is also evident that he is the foundation of circumcision. This is so important that, that remember Calvin's argument previously um, when he talked about how um, the, the knowledge of Christ was given um, first to the patriarchs through the law and then later um, through the gospel. That even in the law, the whole sacrificial system was actually about Jesus. That God did not have one fundamentally different way of dealing with his people and then a totally different, a, a new way when Jesus came. Now in, in many regards, it was all one and the same. Christ was the one um, who made the, the sacrificial system of the Old Testament efficacious for the people of Israel. It was as they anticipated and looked forward to his death on their behalf that their sins were forgiven. Um, and in the same way, circumcision, um, Christ was a substance of that promise that was given to Abraham and to his seed. Even as he quotes here from Genesis 12, Christ was um, the, the seed that would come from Abraham that would be a blessing to the nations. Um, Christ was the fulfillment of that promise that was given to Abraham there in Genesis 12. And to seal this grace, the sign of circumcision is later added to Abraham and to his descendants. Um, going on, Calvin just continues to talk about how um, there's difference between the, 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 the outward appearance of these signs, of course. One is bloody and one is with water, right? And why does the, the shedding of blood end? in circumcision and, and the water is now taken up, what would the reason for that be? Jesus, right? The death of Jesus. There's no more reason for shed blood um, to, to, to show the forgiveness of sins. The blood of Christ has been shed once and for all, and now um, the, the washing of water is given um, in this sacrament. But Calvin says the thing represented is the same, namely regeneration. In both, there is one foundation upon which the fulfillment of these things rest, and the foundation of both is Christ. Um, Calvin goes on, he talks about how um, circumcision was the way in which um, the Jews were adopted into the church. They were assured of their adoption of the people of God. They professed themselves to be enlisted in God's service. And we also are consecrated to God through baptism. In it, we are reckoned to be his people, and we are in turn swear fealty to him. It is um, something that seals us to himself. Baptism, Calvin says, is properly administered to infants then as something owed to them. And of course, Calvin is not here speaking of infants generically, but infants um, which have at least one believing parent. 
Baptism is administered to these children because it is owed to them. It is theirs by right, just as it was by right. Um, the, the, um, the gift of circumcision was given to the children of Israelites. Remember, um, in Exodus, um, Moses has, um, despite his other attributes, um, failed to circumcise his son, apparently. And Zipporah, his wife, goes and circumcises her for him for him um, so that God doesn't strike him dead. And the reason for that is that his son was owed circumcision. It wasn't something that was sort of, you know, opt-in, opt-out. No, it was something that was owed to him, and God um, was going to hold Moses to that um, obligation um, if his wife had not acted on his behalf. Um, Calvin says that God doesn't mock his people with mere trickery. He doesn't nurse them with meaningless symbols. But he expressly declares that the circumcision of a tiny infant will be in lieu of a seal to certify the promise of the covenant. Circumcision sealed the promise of the covenant to that child. But if the covenant remains firm and steadfast, and notice that Calvin says the covenant, the covenant, not some fundamentally radically different covenant, the covenant, if the covenant still remains firm and steadfast, it applies no less today to the children of Christians than under the Old Testament as it pertained to the infants of the Jews. The covenant which the Lord once made with Abraham this is so important to understand this argument, is no less in force today for Christians than it was of old for the Jewish people. Sometimes, you know, we can lose this reality of the Christian faith that, that Jesus had to be a faithful Israelite when he came in the flesh. It would not have been um, in the economy of the redemption that God was working in the world. Jesus could not have grown up in a Germanic tribe um, you know, and lived a, a perfect life and died for the forgiveness of the sins of the world. He could not have grown up in Africa or Asia. He had to be a Jew. Because in the life and death and resurrection of Jesus, what God was doing was being faithful to the same covenant that he had made previously, thousands of years earlier, um, with Abraham. Jesus had to be of the Israelite race. He had to be a son of Abraham in order for God to be faithful to himself. Um, sometimes we lose that. We, we talk about Jesus' death and as if it's somehow an isolation from the Old Testament. But really, it's the fulfillment of all of God's dealings with his people for thousands of years previously. And it is the same covenant um, that was made with Abraham that is in force today. Yes, it has been transformed and enlarged and changed in some ways um, by the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. But it is not some different covenant. And that is so fundamental um, to understand the argument here. Um, Calvin goes on to talk about how the children of, of the Jews were called a holy seed in the same way um, the children of Christians are considered holy. Remember Paul's argument in 1 Corinthians 7 um, that the children of believers are already federally holy and it's for that reason that the sign and seal of baptism is given um, to them. Um, Calvin now goes on and begins to talk about Jesus and the children. This, this for Calvin was not a fundamental aspect of his argument um, but it is, it, is, it is interesting, Calvin would say, and it is even um, an additional reason to, to hold infant baptism, the way in which Jesus dealt with in his life and ministry, how he dealt with children, how he cared for them, how he spoke even of their faith. Jesus and the children. For this reason, the Lord Jesus, wishing to give an example by which the world would understand that he came to enlarge rather than limit the Father's mercy, 
tenderly embraces the infants offered to him, chiding his disciples for trying to deny them access to him because they were leading away from him those to whom the kingdom of heaven belonged. Of course, this is recorded in Matthew as well as the other synoptic gospels as well. But someone will say, what does baptism have in common with Christ's embracing the children? For it is not related that he baptized them, but that he took them, embraced them, and blessed them. It is worth pointing out here that at this point in Jesus, or in the the span of of, um, world history, you know, Christian baptism didn't exist um, in Matthew 19 um, yet, because Jesus had yet to die and be raised from the dead and command his apostles to go out and to baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Um, But in any case, so that's part of the reason why Jesus didn't baptize those children. Um, It is not related that he baptized them, but that he took them, embraced them, and blessed them. Accordingly, they assert, if we would follow his example, let us help infants with prayers, but not baptize them, right? This is an argument that is made. Let us, however, weigh Christ's acts, Calvin says, a little more carefully than such men do. For we must not lightly pass over the fact that Christ commands that the infants be presented to him, and he adds the reason. For of such is the kingdom of heaven. And thereupon he attests his will by his act when embracing them, he commends them with his prayer and his blessing to the Father. If it is right for infants to be brought to Christ, why not also to be received into baptism, the symbol of our communion and fellowship with Christ? If the kingdom of heaven belongs to them, why is the sign denied, which, so to speak, opens the door to them and to the church? so that adopted into it they may be enrolled among the heirs of the kingdom of heaven. How unjust of us to drive away those whom Christ calls to himself, to deprive those whom he adorns with gifts, to shut out those whom he willingly receives. But if we wish to make an issue of the great difference between baptism and this act of Christ, how much more precious shall we regard baptism, by which we attest that infants are contained within God's covenant, that the receiving, embracing, laying on of hands and prayer by which Christ himself present declares both that they are his and are sanctified by him. Um, Calvin now turns his attention to the the question of the silence of the scriptures on the practice of infant baptism. He says, now that everyone may see that infant baptism is by no means fashioned by man, resting as it does on such firm appropriation of scripture or abrogation of scripture. Nor is their objection plausible that there is no evidence of a single infant's ever being baptized by the hands of the apostles. I'm sure you've probably heard this argument, right? Um, there's no um, explicit evidence of infants being baptized in the New Testament, therefore we should not baptize infants. That is the argument that is sometimes made. But Calvin says, even if this is not expressly related by the evangelists, <coughs> that is the writers of the New Testament, especially the Gospels, Still, because infants are not excluded when mention is made of a family's being baptized, and of course we do see this a number of occasions in the New Testament, um, that families are baptized um, because of the profession of faith of one of their members, especially their, their covenant head, so to speak. Who in his senses can reason from this that they were not baptized, right? And we would say, of course, the family members of the Philippian jailer uh, were baptized. Um, we're told he and his whole household were baptized that night by Paul. Of course, they were children there. If such arguments were valid, that is, arguments from silence, Calvin points out, women should similarly be barred from the Lord's Supper. Because where in the New Testament are women explicitly said to be given access to the table of Christ, to the Lord's Supper? Were there any women present 
in the upper room when Jesus instituted the meal? No, we know there were not. Were any women explicitly described as being present in 1 Corinthians 11? No, they're not. I mean, you can see the argument that Calvin is making, basically, that, that this, 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 this counter-argument from silence is not one that is really very persuasive because we typically understand things in a more common-sense way. Um, no one has ever said that women should, uh, for that matter, women are never just, you know, um, yeah, women, women are, not, are just not talked about receiving the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. So, um, but none of us would ever say that women are not given access to that sacrament because we're reading um, the understanding of our New Testament within the context of the old and the context of the movement of God throughout the scriptures as a whole. Um, Calvin also goes on and he says, um, the opponents of infant baptism have spread among the folk the notion that many years passed after Christ's resurrection during which infant baptism was unknown. This is another argument you might hear that in the, in the early church, um, no infants were baptized. It was a later innovation that was brought in perhaps by the Roman Catholic Church or others, but Calvin says, in this they are most shamefully untruthful, for indeed there is no writer, however ancient, who does not regard its origin in the apostolic age as a certainty. And then Calvin, I'm sorry, not Calvin, but the, the editor of the institutes that I'm using, Battles, references here the works of Irenaeus, Origen, and Superior to support Calvin's assertion that even in the early church you see explicit evidence, not evidence from silence, but ev- real, direct, explicit evidence that children were given the sign and seal of baptism. So what is the blessing of infant baptism? Calvin says, it remains for us then to indicate briefly what sort of benefit comes from this observance, both to the believers who present their children for baptism and to the infants themselves who are baptized with sacred water, lest anyone despise it as useless and unprofitable. For this holy institution of his, that is of Christ's, by which we feel our faith singularly comforted does not deserve to be called superfluous. For God's sign communicated to a child is by an impressed seal. We talked about that analogy last time, um, the idea of a baptism being a, a kind of seal on a document, so to speak, or on a letter that is given that seals it as, as um, uh, authentic um, and keeps it confirms the promise given to the pious parent and declares it to be ratified that the Lord will be God not only to him, but to his seed, and that he wills to manifest his goodness and grace not only to him, but to his descendants, even to the thousandth generation. Of course, this is always how God has dealt with his people. The promise to Abraham was not ever only to Abraham, but always included his descendants, and so on and so on throughout um, the entirety of the Old Testament. Um, the Old Testament doesn't make any sense otherwise, right? If the covenant was not only made with Abraham as well as his descendants. Because again and again, the prophets are coming to the people of Israel and they are saying, um, friends, you are in covenant with God and this is the covenant you must keep. They are not saying, uh, friends, you should consider whether to enter into covenant with God as your fathers have, right? That is never once at any time the argument of a prophet in the Old Testament, that you should really, because of the persuasive evidence that Yahweh is the king of heaven and earth, the only true God, you should therefore enter into covenant with him. No, over and over again, they are saying, you are already in covenant because of the decisions and actions of God toward your forefathers. Now you are breaking that covenant and you must reform, you must repent, you must go back to keeping that covenant that is already in force 
and in place. The entire logic of the scriptures makes no sense unless God always deals with his people this way. Not only with them, but also with their descendants after them. If anyone should object that the promise ought to be enough, right? Why isn't just the promise of God that he is um, our God, not only our God, but also the God to our children? Why isn't that enough um, to confirm the salvation of our children? I disregard this argument, for God views this otherwise. As he perceives our weakness, so he is willed to deal tenderly with us in this matter. And for Calvin, this was always a, a... not only the sacraments, but also the word, really any of the means of God's revelation was always in response to our weakness. Um, that, that, that God condescends to us in his revelation of himself in the scriptures. That God condescends to us in his revelation of himself in the sacraments of the baptism and Lord's Supper. Um, he gives it to in our, our, in our weakness, that we might be assured of his grace and mercy, not only for us, but also for our children. Accordingly, let those who embrace the promise that God's mercy is to be extended to their children deem it their duty. It is an an obligation to offer them to the church to be sealed by the symbol of mercy and thereby to arouse themselves to a sure confidence because they see with their very eyes the covenant of the Lord engraved upon the bodies of their children. I love the way that Calvin puts that there, that in baptism, in infant baptism, that the covenant of the Lord is engraved upon the bodies of our children. Right? The, the water that is placed on their head um, in, a, in a physical, literal way will, will dry and will be wiped off and will not stay there. But in some ways, it is an, in, not in some ways, in a real way, it is an indelible mark that from that point forward, this child is now a baptized person in the same way that, that a, a, a Jewish male Um, who was born was a circumcised person. And now the only question is, how are you going to respond to that baptism? Are you going to receive the promises given to you in it by faith? Or are you going to reject them um, through um, unrepentance and hardness of heart? Um, This is, um, the the sign is the covenant of the Lord is engraved on the bodies of our children in baptism. Um, Calvin goes on and talks about how um, the the link between circumcision and baptism that is made by Paul in Colossians 2. This is something that is, um, of course, important as we think about the way that these things are related to one another. Um, He also, I think, I just want to make this point again because I think it's so fundamental. Um, Abraham was the father of all who believe, Calvin says. All who believe, not only those who are of the Jewish race and Paul goes at great lengths to make this point in his epistles, especially Galatians and Romans. The continuity between the faith of Abraham and the faith of those who are putting their faith in Jesus in his time, not only those who are circumcised, but also the uncircumcised, also the Gentiles, that Abraham is the common father in the faith through them all. And this, of course, has to do with that continuity between circumcision and baptism. After Christ's resurrection, Calvin says, the boundaries of God's kingdom began to extend far and wide among all nations generally in order that to, according to Christ's saying, believers might be gathered together from everywhere to sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in heavenly glory. Remember, this is how Jesus talks about the covenant of God, that he was going around and inviting people to a meal where Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are seated. It is not some kind of new meal. It is an expansion, an enlargement, Uh, a a transfiguration, so to speak, of the old meal. People are now being welcomed in in a new way into the way in which God has always um, dealt with his people. 
Um, for during the time set by God's decree, Abraham was the father of circumcision. But then after that wall was broken down, as Paul writes in Ephesians 2, which separated the Gentiles from Jews, the Gentiles too were given access to God's kingdom and Abraham became their father. And that apart from the sign of circumcision, they have baptism in place of it. This is an interesting aspect, I think, of Calvin's argument. It has to do with um, how do we think about our children and their relationship to the Lord, even those who die in infancy. Calvin says they think they're putting forward a very strong reason why children are to be barred from baptism when they claim that children, because of their age, are not yet able to understand the mystery signified in it, spiritual regeneration, which cannot take place in earliest infancy. This is the claim. Calvin doesn't agree with that claim, but this is the claim that is made. Right? Our opponents, therefore, conclude that children are to be considered solely as children of Adam until they reach an appropriate age for the second birth. And that is the effect of that argument. If you say a child cannot be regenerated until he expresses faith and understands uh, the mysteries of salvation, then you are saying explicitly that they are a, children, a child of Adam until that time, that they are outside of the covenant, that God's grace is not applied to them. That is what you were saying when you make that argument. But Calvin says, but God's truth everywhere opposes all these arguments. For if it is admitted that they are among the children of Adam, they are left in death. And this is a fundamental thing. If you believe that, if you believe children cannot be regenerated until they express explicit faith and understand the mysteries of God, then you are saying that any child that dies before that time dies eternally. That is the implication unless God has some other way of saving people. And we don't believe he does, outside of Jesus. On the contrary, Christ commands that they will be brought to him. Why is this? Because he is life. Because they get in the same way we get in. They get in through Jesus. And therefore, to quicken them, he makes them partakers in himself, while these fellows sentence him to banishment and death. For if they hesitate in this, saying that infants do not perish, though they are counted as children of Adam, and this is sometimes the exception that is made, well, we don't believe children can be regenerated until they express faith, but, but however, um, you know, there, there must be, if they die, then they don't go to hell. There must be some other way that God, maybe God overlooks their sin, or they're not really understood to be sinning because they haven't reached some age of accountability or something. But Calvin says, no, that, that's crazy. Scripture declares that in Adam all die. If you were in Adam and you perish, you perish. It follows that no hope or life remains except in Christ. It is only in Jesus that we are made alive. Therefore, to become heirs of life, we must have communion with him. But how, they ask, are infants unendowed with knowledge of good and evil regenerated? We reply that God's work, though beyond our understanding, is still not annulled. Now it is perfectly clear, Calvin says, logically speaking, that those infants who are to be saved, as some are surely saved from that early age, are previously regenerated by the Lord. They are not saved because God overlooks their sin or pretends they are not truly sons and daughters of Adam and rebels against him. No, they've inherited that sin in the womb, so to speak. The only way they are saved is if they have been regenerated by the Lord and made alive by him. For they bear with them an inborn corruption from their mother's womb, and so they must be cleansed of it before they can be admitted to God's kingdom, for nothing polluted or defiled may enter there. 
And I really do think this is where this question of, of, of baptism and regeneration, what we think about children, really the rubber meets the road when we think about what happens to children who die in infancy. And Calvin would say, some of those children are saved. Believers, in fact, can have confidence their children are saved. But the only way they can be saved is by the regeneration of the Holy Spirit, by the work of Christ applied to them. And so therefore, regeneration must not be tied inextricably to professed faith. If they are born sinners, as David and Paul affirm, either they remain unpleasing and hateful to God, or they must be justified. God does not just overlook sin and pretend it does not exist. He must justify those whom he brings to himself. What further do we seek, Calvin says, when the judge, Jesus himself, plainly describes that entry to heavenly life opens only to men who are born anew, as he does in John 3. And to silence such gainsayers, God provided a proof in John the Baptist, whom he sanctified in his mother's womb. And here, the reference is not to how, how John leapt at the um, presence of um, Jesus in utero when Mary came to visit Elizabeth, but rather earlier to Luke 1, where Gabriel says to Zechariah that your child will be holy in the womb when he is, when he is conceived. He will be conceived as a holy person. Um, Calvin there connects that to the Lord must have regenerated John the Baptist in the womb, otherwise how could he have called him holy from the womb in Luke 1.15? And if he did it for John the Baptist, he could do it for others. Calvin says our purpose is solely to show that they wrongly shut God's power within these narrow limits to which it does not permit itself to be confined. The spirit blows where it goes, right? As Jesus says in John 3, where it wills. If God wants to regenerate our children in the womb or in the sacrament of baptism when it is applied to them or at some other time that we do not see yet see evidence of, it is within his, his power, within his nature, within his goodness to do so. And in fact, if children die before professing faith in Christ, there is no other way for them to be saved than for the Lord to have regenerated them and given them life through his spirit and united them to Jesus. Let us not attempt, then Calvin says, to impose a law upon God to keep him from sanctifying whom he pleases, just as he sanctified this child inasmuch as his power is not lessened. I'm going to stop there. Um, I think that's a, that's a good summary of Calvin's argument. Calvin talks about other things there, and I would commend the whole chapter to you, but that's a good place to stop. All right, any questions before we wrap up? Yes, David. Talk about the infants of believers. When you say all infants, yeah, yeah, no, no. Calvin is good question. So Calvin is certainly not saying that um, we can be absolutely certain that the children of believers are all elect. Um, that is not what Calvin is saying. Um, what Calvin is saying is that they are all part of the covenant, and because they are part of the covenant, they should receive the sign and seal of that covenant of grace. Um, but the promises of the covenant, as for every person. Uh, must be responded to by faith. 
Um, faith is something that as they grow up, they must display and, and they must embrace these things. Um, so we, we don't presume the election of our children, um, but we do um, trust God and his mercy and his covenant that he will be faithful. Um, and we, we pray for that and hope for that. Does that help? Yes. I mean, ultimately, no one can fundamentally answer that question, David. So David's asking, what about the children of believers who die in infancy or in the womb? Um, and this is just part of the, um, you know, my, one of my theology professors in seminary drew a line across the chalkboard and then an arrow pointing down the line on the first day of class and said, all of theology is contained in this symbol. Um, there's a line. And God transcends, God is above the line, he comes down to us, he, he condescends to us and incarnates himself and reveals himself. Um, but the, the movement is always from heaven to earth, right? And so there's a, there's a sense in which the, the actual election of any person is a mystery that is known only to God. Um, we, we cannot have certain knowledge of that. Um, we can't get above the line, so to speak. Um, his, it is dependent upon his eternal decree. Um, and yet, I would say that as children of, when children of believers die in the womb or in infancy before they're able to articulate um, verbal faith, that we can have a, a proper confidence. We can have a trust in the way that God uh, works with his people. And I, whenever I meet with parents in those situations, I tell them, you should believe that your child is with the Lord, that every single thing I know about God um, encourages me to believe that it is true. And um, so uh, there's, there's no, none of us can make that promise in some sort of, you know, without any, any conditions. But I think we can have a, a hopeful um, confidence and, and trust in the Lord that our children who die before they can articulate faith belong to Jesus. Yeah. Right. Yes. And. Right, and that, yeah, as Lauren just pointed out, Calvin's argument would be, if that child that has died is elect and is with Jesus, the only way that that, is, that can happen is if the Spirit has regenerated them. Um, God doesn't just sort of pretend like they weren't sinners or they weren't children of Adam or that I'm not a sinner. No, he, if he has brought them to himself, um, you know, if you've lost a child in miscarriage, as Amy and I have, um, and I trust and believe that that child is with the Lord and we will see him or her on the last day when they are risen from the dead, just as we are. Um, but it will only be because the Spirit regenerated them in the womb in some mysterious way, even before they you know, had fully developed brain or whatever. Somehow the Lord did that. And I, I think that we should trust that our children, that is what he does for them when they perish. Yes, sir. Jeff. And then we'll have to close. Sure, yeah. Right.
Right. Yes. Yeah, that's right. And that's, that's what, as Calvin says, the covenant of the Lord is engraved on their bodies, even, like you said, they, a body of a person who could never articulate faith because of the way in which their, their mental capacities are handicapped. But we can trust the Lord for them or trust them to the Lord. Yep. That's all we have. The covenant promises of God. Absolutely. And that, that's, that is, again, why, yes, it always comes back to who, what is God like? What does he do? How does he act? How has he always acted with his people? And we would say this infant baptism is consistent with that. Uh, this is how the Lord has always dealt with his people. It's always been about his covenant promises, not only to us, but to our children. All right, let's, uh, let's stand and pray. Father, we're thankful for your promises. I pray that we would all continue to reflect on this, um, even um, that you would just speak to us, Father, um, especially if we have questions or concerns about um, this doctrine, that your spirit would guide us, that we would continue to return to the scriptures and study them um, with one another, and that your spirit would guide us in the truth. Um, Father, um, I pray, especially for those in this room that have lost children, um, uh, Lord, we um, do not fully understand why these things happen, and yet we trust in your goodness and your faithfulness, and that you are God not only to us, but also to our children after us, even those who perish in the womb or before they can articulate faith, Father. We entrust them to you, to your love and to your mercy. We trust by faith that we will see them again on the last day. They indeed with us will be raised from the dead. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.